Kent Online News. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. Nicola Everett. Hello, thanks ever so much for downloading today's podcast. Hope you're okay. It's Friday, July the 9th, and our top story today is that serving Met Police Officer Wayne Cousins from Kent has pleaded guilty to the murder of Sarah Everard. 33-year-old Sarah disappeared while walking home in London in March. Her body was found in Woodland near Ashford a week later. 48-year-old Cousins from Deal appeared via video link at the Old Bailey earlier. At a previous hearing, he'd admitted kidnapping and raping Sarah. Sky's crime correspondent Martin Brunt was in court. Fundamentally, it means that there will not be a trial. A trial had been set aside for... October, and that promised, of course, to be a sensational trial given the tidal wave of outrage that was felt when Sarah Everard first disappeared. Well, Sarah's disappearance sparked huge protests about the safety of women. You may remember a large vigil on Clapham Common to remember her turned ugly when police intervened as it turned into a mass gathering during COVID restrictions. Well, a lot of attention has been on the Met and how one of their own could carry out such an horrific crime. Commissioner Dame Cresta Dick spoke outside the Old Bailey. My thoughts and those of everyone in the Met Police are with Sarah's loved ones. It's not possible for any of us to begin to imagine what they have been going through. I was able to speak to them earlier today and say again how very sorry I am for their loss and for their pain and their suffering. All of us in the Met are sickened, angered and devastated by this man's crimes. They are dreadful. And everyone in policing feels betrayed. Sarah was a fantastic, talented young woman with her whole life ahead of her. And that has been snatched away. She was hugely loved and she will be sorely missed by so very many people. Ever since Sarah went missing, the sole priority of my investigation team, the search team, and hundreds of others in the Met and beyond was to find Sarah and to bring the person who had committed these terrible crimes to justice as swiftly as we possibly could. In this, we are hugely indebted to Sarah's family and to her friends and to many members of the public who helped the investigation in every single way they could, not least by making appeals and giving us information. No words can adequately express the profound sadness and anger and regret that everyone in the Met, in my police service, feels about what happened to Sarah. Today, as every day, 
our thoughts are with Sarah, with her family, with her loved ones, and they always will be. What we still don't know is what drove Wayne Cousins to kill Sarah. He'd previously told detectives he was in debt to a gang of Eastern Europeans who he met regularly in Folkestone and had been told to bring them a girl. He insisted he'd handed over Sarah to them alive on the A20. Well, that was a complete lie. Carolyn Oakley is from the Crown Prosecution Service. Wayne Cousins lied to the police when he was arrested and to date has refused to comment. We still do not know what drove him to commit this appalling crime against a stranger. The police watchdog is now investigating 12 officers in connection with PC Wayne Cousins. It's alleged Scotland Yard failed to examine two allegations of indecent exposure linked to him in February. He also sustained head injuries in custody in March. Well, at Kent Online, you can read about the search for Sarah, which led to a remote site in Ashford. Cousins is due to be sentenced on September the 29th. Kent Online News. Some breaking news this afternoon. Southern Water's been fined a record £90 million for dumping raw sewage into the sea. The company allowed 21 billion litres into protected waters. They've been sentenced at Canterbury Crown Court today after admitting almost 7,000 illegal discharges from treatment works in Kent, Sussex and Hampshire over a five-year period. You can also read this story and see reaction at Kent Online. Latest figures show coronavirus cases are continuing to rise across Kent. Canterbury has the highest infection rate at 270 per 100,000 people, while Thanet is lowest at 55. 15 patients are currently in hospital with COVID in the county and five deaths were recorded in the week to June the 25th. Drivers in Faversham say they're dreading another 20 weeks of traffic gridlock caused by roadworks. A new set of traffic lights is being installed at the busy junction between the A2 and A251, but it might not be completed until November. It's been causing long delays and residents fear it's putting people off coming to the town. Highways bosses insist they're working hard to get it done as quickly as possible. Now, the Kent Online podcast has been inside Kent's only nuclear power station as the process starts to take it offline. Dungeon SB has generated energy for millions of homes since 1983, but following safety checks back in 2018, a decision on its future had to be made. Well, reporter Oliver Kemp went to have a look around. Ollie, what was it like? Well, the first thing that really struck me, Nicola, was was how much security there was when we first arrived. I mean, it's obviously something you would expect, right? It's a nuclear power station. Um, but but way more than, you know, your standard airport security, for example. Um, all of my equipment was double-checked um, and scanned, and I wasn't allowed to take anything with Bluetooth or wireless capability inside the station, so no phones or anything. I was then given this this device that looked like a yellow pager. Uh, I had to wear that on me at all times, and it would basically let them know if I'd come into contact with any radiation at any point, which is a slightly concerning thing to be told just before you're about to step foot into a power station for the first time. I was obviously okay, so that's good. Um, Once I actually got inside the power station. What an amazing thing to go and see, honestly. These these buildings are huge and they have to, all of these rows of buttons and, and all this hydraulic noise going on around you. You know, I didn't understand a lot of it, I'll be honest, but um, standing on the reactor hall, for example, right below us, just beneath our feet, was all of this nuclear material, which is where the atom is split and all the energy is created. 
such an amazing thing to be able to stand on that and know what's beneath you. We also went to the turbine hall as well, where, you know, the, the energy is finished being harnessed. And, you know, just seeing this building, which has been there for you know four decades or more uh, and had been powering the country for such a long time, you know, it's amazing to see it still standing. And in some ways, it's quite sad to know um, that it will be closing down and decommissioned. Um, but, but obviously, there will be workers there for a considerably long time because you know, decommissioning takes a very, very long time. And I did actually get to speak to station director John Ben to find out a bit more about that. So when, when the power station was in normal operating mode, every three months or so, we would take the reactor offline. We would remove some of the used fuel and put new fuel in. That process is essentially what we're going to do, except we won't be putting any new fuel into the reactor. So we've got 408 fuel channels in each reactor. So what we'll be doing now through the defueling phase is taking that fuel out, sending it up to Cellar Field for reprocessing, and then putting a vacant channel plug in. So basically just plugging the top of the reactor off. And once all the fuel's removed from both reactors, we'll declare the site fuel free, and then we'll be handing the site over for deconstruction, decommissioning, and that'll be through the Magnox partnership. And so that, that journey, that journey for, for the, the fuel to, to go to processing, whereabouts does that go? Can you just re-explain that? It's, it's the same as when we were at power. So it goes up to Sellafield. So we, we take the fuel out of the reactor, we cool it in a big pond, then we put it into a very secure flask. That goes off to the railways. It's transported by rail up to Sellafield in Cumbria, and there it's dismantled and reprocessed there. In terms of the reaction, you guys are a large employer in the area. And I think there was maybe a misconception with some of our readers that I noticed when we first put up the story that, that you guys would be defueling. Oh, jobs are going to go disappear yeah. like that. And you've, you've obviously just explained that that's not the case. Um, but has there, have you had much reaction or pushback from local communities about, about, about this happening? And have you had to explain the fact that actually this defueling process is a very long process with a long life cycle? Yeah, I think pe people read the, the closure um, announcement or the end of generation announcement and, and make some assumptions around what that means. So we have spent a lot of time. Um, you know, I've done 37 one-hour staff briefings right after the decision just to make sure everybody understands what the defueling journey looks like for us to give them some certainty. We've done a lot of work with the local MPs, the local councillors, stakeholder groups, local business enterprise groups. So, you know, the first week after the decision was actually spent mainly just communicating the decision, giving people that clarity about the timeline associated with defueling. You know, our contribution to the local economy is sort of £40 million a year through salaries and, and local contracts. And that's going to continue for that, that decade when EDF are here on site. So I think that's gave a lot of reassurance to your readers that, you know, this site's going to be here for quite a while to come yet. Thanks ever so much, Ollie. You can also read his report by clicking on the in-depth section at Kent Online. Well, staying with that theme of energy and two new solar farms are planned for Kent in a bid to reduce harmful emissions. The county council's been given just over £20 million to help achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, a target set by the government. The farms will be built in Herne Bay and Kings Hill, while solar panels, ground source heat pumps and new double glazing will be installed at schools across the county. Let's hear today from Susan Carey, who's the Cabinet Member for Environment at KCC, and Steve Baggs, who is the Council's Energy Manager. These schemes are worth doing in their own right. If we didn't want to reach net zero, they'd still be worth doing because they reduce our energy costs and they 
bring efficiencies in all sorts of other ways and they will also generate an income for the county council along with you know installing some of this big technology we're also looking at natural solutions so we're looking at the, the biodiversity around solar farms for example and quite often it's amazing what you can do in terms of enhancing the biodiversity um, around solar parks kent online reports there's anger over plans to close a farm for adults with special needs near Tunbridge. Princess Christian Farm in Hildenborough was founded over 100 years ago by Queen Victoria's daughter. North Kent College has confirmed it won't be renewing its contract with Kent County Council to run it, putting its future in doubt. A 28-year-old former grammar school student is set to become the next head of Tunbridge and Morling Council. Matt Borton's been elected as the new Conservative Group leader after Nicholas Heslop made the surprise decision to step down. He'll be officially made leader of the council at a meeting next week. Summer camps are going to be running in parts of Kent to make sure children are fed when they're out of school. Footballer Marcus Rashford raised the issue of youngsters going hungry when classes were taught remotely during the pandemic. Well, now the Street Soccer Foundation will be running activities on weekdays during the holidays, which will include a meal. I've been catching up with Keith Mabbott, who's the chief exec. You know, Kent County Council, Medway Council in particular, um, you know, have basically given us the opportunity to do this programme um, which will start at the end of July throughout the whole of August, Monday to Friday, 10 till 3 each day. Um, and we're expecting sort of 300 plus every day um, children to attend what we've got planned um, as a number of activities, not just football, um, but lots of activities. Um, but every day we are promising these children a lunch um, and hopefully a, a minimum commitment of one hot meal per week as well. When you were speaking to families, did some of those stories surprise you? I mean, this is Kent, it's 2021, and there are families with children who are going hungry. Incomes have stagnated. I think, um, you know, there's rising housing costs all the time. Um, you know, people, no jobs secure anymore, unfortunately. You know, I don't think there's any employment that's guaranteed. You know, so people are quite fearful, actually, as well, um, in terms of what they do day to day, in the decisions that they're making, um, that if they lose their job, you know, in terms of savings, as one given example, we, we spoke to people, and, and again, this is feedback that we were getting from these conversations. One thing that came through often was people's savings, you know, and, and people, you know, it's not typically much more beyond a month or two, you know, in terms of a monthly income, what they've got saved and put away. So, you know, if you do lose your job, you know, if you don't get something else within the next month or two, how are you going to pay your mortgage? How are you going to pay your rent? And, and particularly those families that have got, you know, sorry, those, those individuals that have families to support, um, that's where it becomes quite damning. And, you know, naturally we spoke to some families, you know, where, where children are on food vouchers and this, that and the other. And um, it's, it's really tough. And, and, but these are really hardworking people. They really are. They're, they're such lovely people. And, you know, they really want to make ends meet and do the best by their family. Um, but they're just genuinely really struggling. And, and it is, you're right, Nicola, it's, it's incredible. 2021. But it is happening and it, and it does happen. Um, and I think it's just because of that that um, the pandemic has really hit people a lot um, and very difficult um, situations, you know, that now people are faced with. More on football now as we look ahead to the big game on Sunday and a specially designed England flag is going to be flying at Dover Castle this weekend. It features the surnames of almost everyone living in the country today, 32,000 in total. Kane and Sterling will be included. You can also see a digital version of the flag to find your name on the English Heritage website. Head to our story at Kent Online to find the link. While England face Italy in the Euro 2020 final at Wembley, 
first let's hear from the Harry Kane lookalike. He's called Danny McLaughlin and he's from Sheppey. He's very pleased the captain has found his form just at the right time. To be fair, I didn't think he would get dropped. I think there's he, there's too much. He's too good a player just based on the first few games. Do you know what I mean? And then thankfully he did stick with him because, I mean, he's been on fire since in terms of goal every game, at least one. And then... Yeah, it would have been a terrible time for me as well because I've been, again, thankful for any opportunities that I get like this one. And um, as soon as he started scoring, I was back in back in the fold and able to be on TV, be on radio and do a few of, uh, events this, um, this Euro. So it's been, yeah, as long as he keeps doing what he's doing. While most of us will be cheering on England, an Italian contingent in the county will be hoping it doesn't come home. Tommaso Domidio has lived in Kent for the past five years but grew up in Italy and is from our colleagues at KMTV. Really is the perfect final uh, for me, Joe. Um, come September, will be five years I've been living uh, here in the UK and, well, I guess to play against my, my home country, Italy. Um, I wish I could tell you my, my heart was played and it's a mm. tough choice, mm. well... No, I've got to support Italy. You've got to support Italy, <laughs> just like we all have to support England on Sunday. Uh, would it have been something that you'd like to go to? Would your family have wanted to come over and watch the game? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, massive football fans, my dad, my brother, myself. Um, I even did consider to go um, to Wembley, to be honest, mm. but um, big crowds, expensive mm. tickets. Um, I think I'll keep it quiet during the game, uh, although my neighbours might, might disagree with that. I think it's, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because uh, I suppose... For England fans, this is a once in a generation, really. It's not really the case for you, is it? Well, uh, I was, as I was telling you earlier, Joe, my lifetime will be technically the fourth final well, what's that, that Italy play. <laughs> um, I've watched three, um, so maybe I'm more used to it. Yeah, so okay. I, I, I do understand why it's bigger in this country, but, you know, we've just failed to qualify for a World Cup, so mm. it's, quite, it's quite significant for us as well. But, you know, since then, 30-odd games unbeaten... Do England stand a chance at ending that unbeaten run on Sunday? Um, I think it'll be a tough game for Italy. Really, really tough. Um, it'll be an even game, mm. um, especially because um, very two very good defence here. They've only just mm. conceded their first goals in the tournament. Um, but even that run, I, I disagree with that because Italy have only just played big teams like Spain and Belgium, but the rest was... Like the equivalent of like Gingham mm. Football Club and like Maidstone United. I'm sure the Gingham fans won't be too pleased <laughs> to hear that, but we get the comparison. Uh, before we leave it, Tom, score prediction for Sunday. I'll be honest, one nil to England. Wow. Okay, Tom. Well, I hope it is that. Thanks very much for joining. Wherever you're watching the game on Sunday, have a fantastic time. We are keeping our fingers crossed it's coming home. You'll be able to follow the action on our socials and don't forget to share your pictures and video with us as well and we'll have reaction following the final whistle. At Kent Online, you can see inside a former Herne Bay pub that's been converted into a luxury home. Work to transform the old plough in on Margate Road is almost complete. The four-bedroom property is expected to sell for more than half a million pounds. And Faversham-based brewer Shepherd Neem has signed a deal to bring the latest alcoholic sparkling water to the UK. They're working with a Boston beer company on a product called Truly Hard Seltzer. Dua Lipa's also been involved in launching its latest campaign. Kent Online Sport. Football and Gillingham have been placed under a transfer embargo. It relates to the late filing of accounts with Companies House and the terms of their monitored loan agreement. While it means they can't pay transfer fees right now, they can still sign free agents and loanees. 
the Jills have signed six players so far this summer. And in cricket, Kent are back in T20 blast action later. The Spitfires are top of the South Group table after seven wins from 11 games so far and take on Surrey at the Oval from 6.30. Well, that's all for today. Thanks ever so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can also subscribe to the IM News app to access all KM Group newspapers. Just head to subsaver.co.uk. Hope you have a fantastic weekend. Enjoy the football. If you're watching, we'll be back on Monday. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast.